real meat of this program. We'll get to the main speaker. As you can see, I'm just a warm-up speaker getting ready. You seem sufficiently warmed up, so <clears throat> we're going to have here from our friend Dr. Paul O. Now, Elmer, we're running a little overtime, so Elmer is giving us permission to extend this meeting sufficient time so Paul can have a full hour. Those of you who haven't heard, you're in for a real treat. Those of us who have, for another fine message. Because I've had the privilege of knowing Paul and his lovely wife, Maxine, for many years. They move a lot, get around. <clears throat> if you're in the Palm Desert, Palm uh, Springs area, there's a meeting now that Paul started some years ago, 7 a.m. in Palm Desert, seven days a week. Paul called it the Attitude Adjustment Hour, <clears throat> and it's going strong. I was privileged to be there a few years ago. It was a Saturday morning, and I expected in, in New York we have some of the young secretaries and young people on their way to work. So I figured Saturday and sleep in days, but a few people there. I walked in, there were 60 people there, there were no young secretaries. The first person I saw was, <clears throat> was, uh, Dr. West. And he couldn't pass his 20 year old secretary if you know him, at any rate. It's a good solid group and they're going great. Thanks to Paul starting it some years ago. Paul is a regular contributor to the grapevine. There's good articles in there and when he writes in the grapevine, he has something to say and he says it well. Now, I don't know how you feel about people that quote the big book by page. I'll take a damn view of them. However, on page 132, in the big book, there is a signal sentence, and to me this describes in one sentence the way Paul and Maxine like this program. That sentence, I'll quote it, page 132 in the big book. We insist on enjoying life. 132 in the big book, halfway down the page. We insist on enjoying life. And from where I sit, Paul read that early in the game, and he's been living that ever since. Paul, come up. Thank you, Hal. It's a good warm-up talk, but I wish you'd have warmed it up a little bit more. I think it's cold in here. And happy Sunday morning to you. Isn't this a beautiful day to stay sober? My name is Paul, and I'm an alcoholic. And I bring you greetings from the Pomona 6.45 a.m. daily attitude adjustment hour. And we have about 77 people attend that meeting. Uh, this has been a tremendous uh, convention. I Don't you agree this has been something... I'm sure the uh, this has been such a weekend. I'm sure it has enough momentum to carry itself for the next hour. Uh, I uh, this has really been a way to to run a convention. I uh, am delighted to be here. I, I really admire Elmer and his crew and what they've done, and I appreciated them. Uh, I, what I appreciated most about Elmer was his sense of humor to put me on as a, uh, a spiritual speaker. Uh, I, that didn't make any sense at all. But then we solved that by allowing uh, Hal to carry the spiritual message. 
and uh, he's given the spiritual part of the program, and I'll give the drunk along. I have a fascinating drunk along. Uh, I tend to get fascinated by it, and they take up a collection, and I haven't gotten sober yet. See? And uh, I'm an alcoholic, uh, and I've taken a pill or two or three or four or more. Uh, they were very small pill. Uh, not much bigger than an aspirin, most of them. Uh, obviously, one would never do it. Uh, but I never became a pill head. Uh, pill heads take pills to get loaded and uh, to get high. And, uh, just for the fun of it. And buy their pills just any place. I never did anything like that. I, I, I t- the only pills I ever took, I took because I had the symptom that only that pill would relieve. I either had it or I could feel it coming on. They, uh, every pill I ever took was medically indicated at the time and prescribed by a doctor and, and taken according to directions. Uh, and I've um, used a few, few narcotics, uh, but I never became a um, dope fiend. I never stooped that low. Dope fiends uh, use dirty needles and buy their drugs on the street. And uh, I never did anything like that. Only narcotics I ever used were legal narcotics that I had stolen from my patient. Uh, but I never, uh, I never stole any drugs from a patient that needed it worse than I did. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they didn't usually didn't need it at all. Uh, Max worked in the office with me uh, for the 25 years I practiced uh, solo internal medicine in uh, Garden Grove, California. And I would, somebody would come in with a flu and I'd make a diagnosis of cholelithiasis and prescribe two cc's of Demerol and give them two cc's of vitamin B complex and I'd take one cc of Demerol and they'd owe me one cc. And, and as time went on, it got harder and harder to keep remember who owed who what. And, but I kept my federal narcotic registry straightened out or I fooled her into keeping it straightened out. And that worked out alright. I, uh, I said I was an alcoholic, uh, and the question is, what is an alcoholic? I had an excellent discussion of that uh, yesterday by uh, uh, Stan, my favorite speaker. Uh, he, uh, and to me, an alcoholic is a person. I, when I say I'm an alcoholic, what I mean is I react peculiarly to the drug alcohol. I do weird and peculiar things when I drink. In fact, I can't drink socially. Sensibly, safely, sanely. In fact, I can't drink with a damn. Uh, and it'd be best if I just don't drink. Uh, the problem with that is that I have a, uh, when I, when I drink, my body reacts different, many ways in which it reacts different. One is that when I take one drink, then I need another drink. I've never taken a drink that didn't satisfy me. 
I feel satisfied all over. But then in a little while, that drink says, hey, I'm the only one around here who hasn't had a drink. And so I give that drink a drink. And that's satisfied for a while until that drink wants a drink. The obvious answer to that is you take a double. But I always ended up drinking more, not always, but the longer I drank, the more often I drank more than I planned to drink. I I made this circle that Stan drew on the board, uh, the loops. Uh, the, the first drink cost me to go on to the others. Not every time, but the longer I drank, the more often I ended up accidentally drunk. That's what distinguishes between an alcoholic and a uh, person with a drinking problem. An alcoholic knows what they're doing, don't they? Sure, they always did in any movie I ever saw. Uh, so how could I be an alcoholic? Because I had gotten drunk by accident. It wasn't intentional like alcoholics do. And besides, I was a doctor, uh, so I couldn't be an alcoholic. And I, it never occurred to me that I ought to be an alcoholic. Or no school counselor had ever said, you know, have you ever considered being an alcoholic? You know, <laughs> they seemed to have a lot of fun. Uh, my mother never suggested when I grew up I might want to be president of AA. <laughs> I don't think I even look like an alcoholic, uh, except when I'm drinking. Uh, I couldn't have been an alcoholic, but I react peculiarly to the drug alcohol. And I, I, I have a, a body that can't drink, and yet I have a mind that under any circumstances, hot or cold, a lot of people are alone, day or night, whatever, happy occasion, sad occasion, whatever. So I will say, let's have a drink. So I got a brain that insists on drinking and a body that can't drink. So I both have to drink and I can't drink. That's a, that's a dilemma. What it means is that without AA, you're screwed, you know. And I was screwed a long time and didn't even know what the problem was. It's been interesting to me that um, once I accepted my alcoholism, once I gave myself permission to go ahead and be an alcoholic, I, I don't have any problem with drinking anymore. I do all kinds of things to keep from drinking, and as a result of doing all those things that I'm doing, and as uh, Hal said, it's much more than just going to meetings. I see many people around AA and around uh, and in the alcoholism field who try to stay sober on just meetings. And people who stay sober on just meetings do stay sober on just meetings right up to the point where they get drunk. And then he said, well, what happened? And AA didn't work for me. If, uh, people like that should never say AA didn't work for me because they haven't tried AA yet. AA is the steps. It's not just going to meetings, as Hal said so well. But anyway, doing all the things that I do to stay sober, staying sober is the easiest thing I do. It's, uh, and it's also the most important thing to do that I do. There's nothing more important to me today 
than my sobriety. I always wanted sobriety, but I didn't want it that bad. In fact, I didn't want it bad enough to give up drinking. Uh, but I, I wanted sobriety, but I didn't want it badly enough. And today it's the most important thing. There's nothing more important to me today than to be a successful member of AA. And you can define successful any way you want. And as a result, other things I do, as I say, not drinking uh, isn't a problem. It's been AA, it's rather dramatic the way AA has taken care of my drinking problem. On the other hand, it hasn't been nearly as dramatic in the way it has helped me with my thinking problem. I Today, I don't have a drinking problem so much as I have a thinking problem. Uh, As a matter of fact, I don't even have a problem today unless I think I do. And I've never thought I did and been wrong. In fact, I've never even had a little problem and thought it was a big problem, and it was always a big problem. I, what, if I, <clears throat> I am in control of whether my problems are big or little. In fact, I can take any problem and make it bigger by th- just, I don't have to work on it, all I have to do is think about it. Just, I put power in it just by, in fact, I can take a, I can take a non-problem. Well, that, that's really no problem. It really isn't. That's no problem. But if you think about it for a minute, you know, it could be. In fact, you know, just think about it a minute, and you finally you can see it's, it, you know, it's a good thing I'm thinking about this, because it could be quite a problem. In fact, it is kind of a problem. In fact, it, the bigger it gets, the more I look at it, and the, it's hard for me to have a problem and not be obsessed with it. And, and at pretty soon, that's all I can see, and next thing I know, I'm thinking, look at this goddamn problem, you know? <laughs> I, uh, and people say, don't think about it, don't worry about it. How do you not worry about it? That's all you can see. And finally, the phone rings. And somebody that I'm sponsoring is calling about some really stupid little problem. (laughs) Really? Have you ever noticed how simple people's problems are? And and you know what they ought to do. you do the third step, or you write, go ahead and write your fourth and stop putting it off, or whatever. But you can't just tell them that, because if you do, they'll think you don't care. You're not li- you don't understand. So you have to listen. And you listen, and you listen, and listen. And finally, when they wind down, you say, well, go do the third step, or go write your fourth, or whatever you were going to say in the beginning anyway. And you finally come back to your problem. Say, what happened to my problem? You know... <laughs> It just wilted right away. You can't neglect problems at all. You gotta stay right in there. Stay right with them. They take a lot of nurturing, a lot of watering, a lot of fertilizer, lots of fertilizer. Can't, problems have a tremendously high infant mortality. You gotta stay right, stay right with them there.
I, uh, my thinking is, is my problem today. I found out, I found out what the basis of that really. I shouldn't have walked up here and said, my name is Paul and I'm an alcoholic. I should have said, my name is Paul and we are alcoholic. I'm not alone up here. My, the, they make a big deal out of schizophrenia and split personality. So two, two. Uh, they even wrote a book about, uh, what's her name, uh, Sybil. How many personalities did she have? Uh, eight or ten, twelve or sixteen or something like that. That's nothing. That's nothing. I must have, a, I've got personalities I haven't even used yet, you know. Mine's a very busy place up there. i got people, t- and I don't know how you think, but I think in in words and sentences, talking, somebody's talking all the time. Talk, 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 talk. It seems like when they held me up and went like that, they turned on a radio talk show and then talk, 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 talk. And sometimes it drifts over and picks up another station and they're both talk, 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 talk. And, and I used to have to turn on my drinker to turn off my thinker. And many times my body would want to go to bed at night and my brain would say, let's see what we can talk about some more, you know. Talk, 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 all the time talk. They have voices that specialize in certain things. One of them says, better not do that. Don't do that. You'll screw it up and they'll all laugh at you. Uh, the, uh, and others that say, uh, oh, you can do it. You can do it. And, and then there's one that says, uh, you're going to do it anyway. You're going to do it anyway. You know, and I would say, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to make that curve back to the beginning again. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll make a novena. And the voice say, you're going to do it anyway. I'll make a litany. You're going to do it anyway. And and there's one that no no matter what the circumstance is, as I said, whether it's a happy occasion or a sad one or whatever, answer to any problem is always the same. Let's have a drink. Let's Let's have a drink. The trouble with that was every time he had a drink, we all got drunk. And the voices are all the time talking. And you know, I have to, I used to drown them out with pills and drugs, alcohol. And I found out that that's where, that I, I can't afford to do that because that's where God talks to me. I don't know how he talks, I don't know if you talked to any burning bushes lately, but God talks to me through those voices, one of those voices, and the voices in AA. And in AA, I don't think that every voice I hear is the voice of God, and every voice I hear in my head isn't. But I can't afford to not listen to all of them so I can pick out which ones are. And so then that's where I get my direction, through the voices in my head and the voices that I hear in AA. And now these voices talk... What... What it was is whoever talked loudest, that's what we did. It was like my life was run by a committee, 
and nobody ever told me I was supposed to be in charge. And so whoever talked the loudest or was the most aggressive, that's what we did. And the guy that says, let's have a drink, was pretty aggressive. And today he can say that, but I don't necessarily have to follow it through. I can just hear him say it. And like anybody else is talking in my head, I let him talk. And we're sure I say, well, thank you for your participation. Now you can sit down and call on somebody else. Everybody gets a chance. And, uh, many a night I'll be asleep and uh, they'll wake me up and say, wake up, we want to talk to you. You, know, and, uh, you remember that thing that happened today and you thought you handled it so well? Didn't turn out like that at all. You know, they're really ticked off at you. Wait till morning. You know. uh, talk, talk, talk all the time. A very busy place in my head. In fact, I talked about sleeping. I didn't really have a drinking problem. I had a sleeping problem. I had this born with congenital insomnia. And uh, I've always had trouble sleeping. And I remember clear back in pharmacy school that uh, I would go to pharmacy school all day, work in the drugstore all night, study till midnight, one, two o'clock, go to bed. Everything I'd been studying would be running through my head. And I'd be half awake and half asleep. And in the morning, I'd wake up. I'd be both tired and stupid. And I, sleeping pills didn't work until the next day. And tranquilizers hadn't been invented yet. But a couple of beers, at the end of the study period, I'd jump in bed, sleep real fast, and wake up smart. And it worked well. I was I got honored grades in pharmacy school and later on in uh, medical school. And... Uh, it worked fine for me, except that uh, the longer I used it, the more it took to get me to sleep and the shorter span of time it kept me asleep. And so I'd have to drink myself back to sleep through, through the night. Or some thoughtless patient that didn't know I had this problem would call and wake me up, and I'd have to drink myself back to sleep. Somebody mentioned it in one of the talks today about uh, their writing, that uh, taking... Uh, notes of what happened on the phone. I got to where we had three lines into the house and extensions all over the place. I put pads and pencils every place, told the kids, your doctor, your father's a doctor, you don't move this pad or pencil. Uh, so I had a train, and everybody trained, so the phone rang, there's a pad and pencil there, so they never knew when I was going to be answering the phone when I was drinking, and I'd write notes, and that way I could remember in the morning, I have a note of what of the telephone conversation. Uh, seemed like no time at all that I would get up in the morning and find those notes and I couldn't read them. And that was worse than writing them, so I stopped that and, and uh, I gave that up. In fact, it was interesting the way my notes for the uh, in the in the uh, office uh, patients uh, charts the notes for uh, 1966. As the year progressed, each month the writing got smaller and smaller and smaller. And uh, then there was a period of months. A man came out of nowhere. Very strange thing. Uh, a doctor had uh, finished, graduated from medical school, finished his training in internal medicine and gastroenterology, wanted to open an office in a nearby community, but didn't know any of the business aspects of running an office, and wanted some experience. And he came in and took over my office uh, while I disappeared for a while. 
to find out to take care of myself. And uh, his writing was in there during that time. And then when I came back, my writing was entirely different. It was, uh, in fact, some of the I was sat down afterwards to copy some of those notes over for medical legal reasons. And there's a number of those charts that I couldn't even begin to read my own writing in order to correct them. And I have a stack of those charts at home, uh, those pages, just in case I ever need to remind myself of what it was like in the year 1966 when my writing got down to the point where I couldn't even read it myself. I, uh, uh, got, as, I, as I say, you're taking the pills at night to sleep, made it harder and harder to get up in the morning. I never became a morning drinker because that uh, would have made me an alcoholic, <clears throat> alcoholics drink in the morning. And I have no respect for a physician who drank in the morning and went to work. Uh, but I remember, so I had a 5 a.m. shutoff time. <laughs> and, but that made it kind of hard to get up in the morning sometimes. And I remember the day I thought to myself, my God, what would you do for a patient that feels like you feel? And the answer came right back, well, I'd give them something to pep them up. And uh, so I started taking some uh, appetite appeasers, and, uh, and then I took some, uh, I wondered one day, I thought, well, why taking a pill with a downer in it when you're trying to get upper? So I took straight Benzedrine, straight Ritalin, I was injecting Benzedrine. I finally worked my way up to 45 milligrams of the long-acting Benzedrine spatula and 45 milligrams of the short-acting tablet just to get out of bed in the morning. And then I would take more during the day in order to stay up. And I would take tranquilizers to take care of the overshoot. And uh, then I, I got the, the, the evening came on and I thought to myself, my God, you couldn't sleep before. How are you going to sleep now that you're taking all these pep pills? So I started taking sleeping pills to counteract the pep pills so the scotch could put me to sleep. The, and Everything I took gave me symptoms or side effects that meant that I had to take something else. Nothing worked perfectly. Everything I always had is complications. Even the peptides, I found that uh, they would wake me up, but they would turn my mouth on to the point where I would find myself saying something. I think, my God, why are you saying that again? You've already said it three times. Yeah, but it just sounded so good. I had to say it one more time. Yeah. And as I've often said, I, when I, uh, I do a lot of physical examinations as an internist. And when I examine men, I have them, uh, take off everything but their shorts. Uh, when I examine women, I have them take off everything. And I give them a plastic thing with a couple holes on it, you know, and they stick their arms through it and it hangs down front. They feel like they've got something there. And they're sitting on a table facing this way, and I examine their eyes, ears, nose, throat, and neck, and I take a little plastic thing and drop it down, put my right hand over their left breast, and I say to them, do you examine your breasts regularly for lumps? It's always been, it, it's interesting to me, it's always the same, well, one of two responses, always, no, no, nothing other than the two, they always, they always think to themselves, they either think to themselves, Oh, my last doctor told me to do that, and I used to do that, but I never found any lumps, so I decided I wasn't doing it right, so I stopped doing it, but I ought to be doing it. Or else they think, oh, my last doctor told me to do that, but I don't want any lumps in my breast, so I've never done that, but I ought to be doing it. 
But either way, I never put my hands on a woman's breast without sin. You examine your breasts regularly for lumps. And it's always worked very well for me. Uh, except this one day, uh, after a few pills, I had a rather hard night, as I recall, and I was examining the scalp, she was rather small. It wasn't that she was so short, just that she wasn't at all well endowed in the breast department. And I examined her eyes, ears, nose, throat, neck, and dropped a little plastic thing down, put my right hand over her left nubbin, and I looked at her very solicitously, and I said, you examine your lumps regularly for breast? The... uh, I've, I've often wondered whatever happened to her. Uh, the, I figure I'll see her uh, someday in AA. There goes Bob and Madonna. They went with us on Princess Cruise. Safe trip home, Madonna. The, uh, I, uh, acceptance was my, the key. I, I felt that I had, uh, uh, I had, I actually, I had convulsions twice. I had pancreatitis once, uh, I had changed personality, I had daily headaches, I had a sense of impending insanity, I knew I was going crazy, uh, obviously there was something seriously wrong with me. I was, t- I was just seeing a neurologist, I was seeing the best neurologist in Orange County, and he didn't know why I had a convulsion, he didn't uh, think to ask me if I drank, and I didn't think to tell him. And uh, it, 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 I had all these other things going on, and I had a consultation with myself. Uh, I happened to be the best internist I knew, and um, knew my case better than anybody else. And, and going over my symptoms and my findings, it was obvious to me. I had a brain tumor, and I would die, and you'd all be sorry by God. And that's uh. This neurologist had uh, trained at uh, Mayo Clinic, and he, as I say, didn't know why I had the convulsions, and he uh, decided I should go back to the Mayo Clinic. And I figured, well, that's a pretty good place for my brain tumor to be diagnosed. And I went back there on Christmas season of 1966, and uh, unbeknownst to me, Max told them about my pill-taking, and... Uh, I ended up in the nut ward at the Mayo Clinic. And I don't know if you've ever been in the nut ward, I'm sure. You look at this, this distinguished crowd, I'm sure none of you have. Uh, it's a boring place to be. And uh, it's a, I don't want to say anything against the Mayo Clinic particularly, uh, but I wouldn't go there at Christmas time. Uh, the, they, um, if you go there at Christmas time, they make you ice Christmas cookies. Uh, and I, 
I had an older sister that had a thing about Christmas cookies. And every Christmas, she'd make all different kinds of shapes and sizes of cookies, uh, Christmas trees and Santa Clauses and angels, and different colors of icing. And then we'd have a Christmas cookie icing party and see who could ice the prettiest Christmas cookie. And I never liked icing Christmas cookies when I was a little kid back in Alliance, Ohio. And I didn't like icing Christmas cookies when I was a big shot doctor on the nut ward at the Mayo Clinic. The, uh, stupid nurse took me out of my cell. We went down to the cookie party and she would steer my hand into the icing and we'd smash it onto a cookie. I don't know how many cookies we crumbled before I told her what she could do with her cookies, you know. I went back to my cell, by God. In fact, I signed out of that place. I uh, I knew how to get out. It was Christmas Day. I signed out on Christmas Day. And the psychiatrist in charge didn't come down. He had the psychiatric resident come down and talk to me. And he couldn't talk to me in the stand. And... Uh, an old jerk said to me, well, I hope you make it, but I know you won't. And I thought, well, who the hell are you, you little pipsqueak nobody who, you haven't just got out of here and almost a doctor, you know, uh, and I've got a big office practice and I'm making it out there and you're telling me I can't make it. And... Uh, and yet that was the beginning. That was the beginning of somebody beginning to get my attention. And uh, But I, uh, it was hard for me right at that moment I was trying to get Max's attention because they won't let you out of the nut ward unless they got somebody that will sign a receipt for you. And uh, I was trying to get Max to take the responsibility and she didn't know if she wanted to do that or not. And finally I got her. I said, if you don't do it, I'll never speak to you again. And she said, well, what could she do? Today she's regretted that decision. Uh, but she signed a receipt. We got on the airplane to fly back to California where they treat me with more respect. And I, meanwhile, I promised her I'd never drink again, take pills again, talk to girls again, smile again, never be happy again. And got on the airplane and had a big fight over whether or not I was going to drink the free booze. And they see, the point wasn't that I needed the drink. It was just that I had paid for it. And it's kind of sinful to not drink it if you paid for it. And, but uh, she nagged, and she's a real nag. And uh, she drove me to drink for years, as a matter of fact. Uh, they, uh, and she won. I didn't drink it. But by God, I fixed her. I wouldn't talk and I wouldn't eat either all the way back. <laughs> uh, that was the way Max and I are, and our two adopted daughters spent Christmas Day, 1966, flying back to California where they treat me with more respect. And we called uh, the neurologist, told him about the nut ward. He said, better see a psychiatrist here. Went to see a psychiatrist. Max talked to him. I talked to him for 45 minutes, Max talked to him for 5 minutes, and he put me in the nut ward of the hospital I was on the staff of. 
That's uh, they Denver. Uh, it's a difficult place to be. Uh, in medical school, they never taught me how to act on the nut ward when when you're on the wrong end of the stethoscope. And uh, it's a board. They have a bulletin board of things to do and, and what you're how you're supposed to act, the schedule. And I'd read that thing, and then I'd get to the end. I think, geez, I. Well, I wonder what I'm supposed to do. Uh, and they, they wanted me to make leather belts. And I thought, you know, that's absolutely ridiculous, uh, that a man of my education and training, background, intelligence, and good looks, that I'd be sitting there with kooky patients making leather belts. It didn't, didn't make any sense to me at all. And plus the fact I didn't understand the instructions. And the, uh, the, well, that wasn't my fault. I've always had the theory that if you don't understand something well enough that you can explain it to me so that I understand it, then you don't really understand it all that well. And this poor, stupid occupational therapy girl had explained it to me three times. And I didn't want to embarrass her by asking her a fourth time. Uh, the strange thing happened, though. I, I don't. This I haven't figured out yet. Since then, I've been to just any and every kind of AA function I can find: roundups, conventions, social functions, uh, crews that hell mention whatever it has to do with AA. I'm for it. Let's go. But I've never yet been to an AA function where they had a booth or demonstration in occupational therapy. And yet, for some reason or other, once I started going to AA meetings, if I never got anything else out of AA, I went to some AA meetings, and I went back to that hospital, and I made the most beautiful pair of moccasins you've ever seen. A pair of moccasins and a half a wallet. And, uh, and just delightful moccasins. Uh, they fit good, and they looked good, and they felt good, they wore well. I used to wear them all the time. I'd get home from work and take off my tie and my shoes, fill my moccasins, and go out and clean the pool and get gas and all that stuff. And they wear out and repair them. It took seven years before they wore out to the point where I couldn't, uh, could no longer repair them. And uh, I felt bad. Uh, not bad enough to go back and make another pair, but uh, I felt bad to think they were wearing out. And for my seventh AA birthday, my dear Al-Anon wife had my moccasins bronze. And, and I now have a pair of bronze moccasins. I just love my moccasins. I, I just, they're not uh, nearly as comfortable now, but they, uh, they'll last longer, and uh, as long as I remember where they came from, I won't have to go back and make another pair. And uh, I love my moccasins. 
And I love Max for getting them for me. Max, I should explain, Max is short for Maxine. Uh, some people may be confused by that. Uh, Max was one of the, another one of the problems that uh, I used to work on because uh, Max became quite ill. And uh, I was quite disturbed by that. And I used to try to help her. Quite disturbed by that, and I used to try to help her. After all, I was a professional helper, uh, made my living helping people, and it was obvious that I could help her. Uh, and I did all kinds of things to help her. And I worked on that problem. Uh, I thought maybe hypnosis would help her, and I took a, even took a course in hypnosis. And she turned out she wasn't a very good hypnotic subject. Uh, I gave her a milk town and she went down to sleep. And, uh, and I was—I ended up—I didn't give up. Though I took—I ended up taking six courses in hypnosis. I ended up a drunken hypnotist, and uh, I uh, sent her to different schools and kind. How did it work on her case? The sicker she got. So it was like my insomnia. The harder I worked on it, the worse it got. The worse it got, the harder I worked on it. The same way with my drinking problem. The harder I worked on it, the worse it got. The worse it got, the harder I worked on it. Awful lot of problems in which my working on them makes them worse. Even just thinking about them makes them worse. My whole focus in life was to know what you wanted, have your goals, have your final goal higher than you could achieve. And then the intermediate goals, and then have know who you needed to get to help you get there. That's the executive ability. And now and on they call it manipulation, but I I like executive ability better. And uh, I, uh, in fact, when I got through pharmacy school, my family sent me to pharmacy school because uh, they wanted me to run the family drugstore. But my father had died. And uh, the problem with that was that people didn't seem to appreciate my degree as much as I thought they should. Uh, they certainly weren't as impressed with it as I was. I thought they'd be more impressed if I had a medical degree. But my family was in the Depression, and they didn't want me to be a doctor. They wanted me to stay home and run the family drugstore. They didn't have any money to send me to medical school. I had no way to get to medical school. So I married the girl next door and suggested she work my way through medical school. And uh, that's where Max came in. And uh, the same thing happened. Though when I got my medical degree, people weren't particularly impressed with that. And I thought they made me, they would be more impressed if I had a specialty degree. So I said, you, you're doing a good job, kid. Keep on working and we'll get us a specialty degree. And that's how I got into internal medicine. And I studied all the pills and medicines that people use. And I was, as I say, very good at it. I had a very good practice. I had very ethical and never got in any trouble. Worked very hard to stay out of trouble. And it was a nightmare staying out. Um, but I was very ethical. Had, uh, had my own version of the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, 
never ever gave a patient a pill that I hadn't first tried out on myself. Yeah. And Max worked in the office with me for 25 years as in practice, as they say. As a matter of fact, the end of uh, this year, uh, Max and I will have been married for 44 years. And we've been emotionally involved to varying degrees of intensity for 59 years. To, to accomplish a deal like that, uh, first requirement is you've got to be very, very old. <laughs> and we're getting younger all the time. And it's been a great relationship. The, uh, uh, my, I found that working on my problems is the worst thing I can do. And um, acceptance of my alcoholism was the key to sobriety for me. It took me, in order to get out of the nut ward, I had to agree to go on passes to AA meetings. I remember the first time sitting there in that nut ward. I was still trying to, Maya, it was, I think it was Stan mentioned the other day how we fight for control. And the more I lost control, the more I fought for control. The more I was losing control, the more things I tried to control. So I was trying to control everything and everybody. Uh, and I lived in two worlds. I still do. I live in an inner world and an outer world. You're in the outer world. My skin decides, uh, is the divide, division between the inner world and the outer world. And I used to try to control everything on the outside so that I'd be comfortable on the inside. And when that didn't work, I used chemicals, I guess, to control the inside. Uh, speaking of that, reminds me that so many times people talk about alcoholics that we drink in order to feel good, or we take a drink and then we feel normal, or take a drink and feel boom. I didn't have, I don't remember that. I don't recall, that isn't my recollection of my drinking, that I drank in order to feel wonderful. Um, I don't know why I drank. But the only thing I can say is that every drink I ever took seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, it is true that in retrospect, going way, way, way back, pharmacy school and before, uh, going to church um, dinner dances, Drinking before you go there, because at the at a, I hate I hate church dinner dances because uh, there are people there and they expect you to talk to them. Learn how to talk to people, and at a dance they expect you to dance, and I didn't know how to dance. Uh, and they can't drink there. You have to. I, I've always been had a fear that people would think I drank too much. Now, there's only one thing worse than drinking too much, and almost worse, is not drinking at all. Then they know you've got a problem if you don't drink. So you have to drink, but you have to be careful not to drink too much. So I would only drink two drinks while I was there, but I had some drinks before I went, and I had more drinks when I got back to celebrate how well it went. 
But I would have a few drinks before I went, and it would relax me physically and mentally, apparently. It would relax me uh, physically, and I could dance. Today, I don't drink, and I don't dance. It would relax me mentally, and I would could talk. And uh, that's the way, apparently, I used it without realizing... Uh, being aware of the fact that I was using it for that reason. It seems, though, as time went on, the two got out of sync. And, uh, for instance, I would uh, have had a few drinks, and I wouldn't even have begun to relax mentally yet, and I would get too relaxed physically. It might show up in my speech, my tongue, and I think I'm talking funny, So I'll be very careful so people won't notice. Uh, Or I would reach for something and knock it over. Or I would trip or something. I'd be laying there on a carpet. And my brain would say, get up, you fool. These people will think you're drunk. And my body would say, how am I going to get up? I can't move. I've always fascinated by the strange effect that alcohol had on my body at times. And I gee, that's weird. I must react oddly to alcohol, you know. That went on for years and years. Isn't that strange? Right, isn't it strange, you know. The other times, the opposite would happen. I wouldn't even, I would have a few drinks, and I um, wouldn't even have begun to relax physically yet. And it's as if all my brain cells would get together and say, well, hell, he's drinking anyhow. Let's take the night off, you know. And they'd all go on home, and my body would go on doing things, you know. And in the morning, I would try to recall what my body had been doing when nobody had stayed on duty in my brain to make a record. Yeah. I used to try to figure out how to... You, you can't recall something that wasn't recorded. It's like trying to play a television program you missed. It's gone, you know. Uh, I, used to, I used to worry about that. I used to try to figure out how, what I what I did during the blackout. I, I've given that up ever since I heard uh, my friend Cliff uh, R. down Oceanside to talk about how... He never had come out of a blackout to find that he had spent the night helping the little sisters of the poor. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, I no longer concentrate on that. But, the, uh, but I was uh, sitting there as I say, trying to control everything. Fighting for control is always... And it got really bad. As in the nut war, I spent my time... See, Max was still working in the office, my girl Friday. I spent my time in the nut war writing lists and letters and directions and phone calls for her to make in order for her to keep the world running while I was locked up in the nut war. Now, today, I... You know, I realize that's pretty crazy. Uh, it's not nearly as crazy as her coming back every morning for a new list like she did. But, uh, but that's the way we had worked. Control, control, control. And I, 
I get an AA and I find out that that's the opposite of the whole AA program. We give up that control. Uh, I remember sitting there in the nut ward commiserating with myself with all the things that had gone wrong. You see, when you're in charge of everything, then anything that goes happens other than the way you planned it obviously happened by mistake. And I was sitting there commiserating with myself with all the things that had gone wrong and it happened, uh, the mistakes that had been made that a nice guy like me ended up in a place like that. And this dumb psychiatrist who couldn't see that Max was my problem walked up behind me and said, would I like to talk to a man from AA? And I thought, God Almighty, don't I have enough problems of my own without trying to help some drunk from AA? You know, I didn't even know anything about alcoholism. Didn't even want to know anything about alcoholism. Didn't even like alcoholics. Never paid their bill anyway. Uh, they, uh, they, but I could tell by the look on his face it would make him happy. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a nut ward, but in a nut ward, happiness is a happy psychiatrist. You, you do just about anything to make those guys happy. Uh, and I thought, if it make him happy, I'm willing to do it. So I went off to some AME. But I remember this clown come galloping into the room screaming, my name is Frank and I'm an alcoholic. Ah, 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 ah. And I thought, oh my God. Uh, I felt sorry for him. The only thing in life he had to brag about was the fact he was an alcoholic. You know? uh, I was a lot more impressed when I found out later he was an attorney. Uh, <laughs> several days later, Max was there, and, and he says, we're going to an AA meeting, you want to go along? So she went along, and got in the car, he was telling us all kinds of personal stuff. It was just... I was embarrassed for him, uh, talking about how he was having trouble with his wife and uh, tried to patch things up with her by giving her guitar lessons. And she ran off with the guitar teacher, you know. And, and we got down to the AA meeting, and Max and I said, well, we're not going with him anymore, you know. The... Uh, and I heard a lot of dumb things in AA. I remember the first time I heard a guy say to me, if, if I don't drink today, I'm a success today. If I don't have a drink today, I'm a success today. And I was, I was disgusted. I thought, it, my God, isn't that ridiculous? There's no better thing in life to brag about than the fact you haven't had a lousy beer today, you know. I got a lot more important things to do than that. Uh, which is the way you think when you're drinking. Uh, it took seven months of hearing things. It took seven months. Uh, I remember the day the guy said of himself, he said, I was judging me by my intentions, and the world was judging me by my actions. 
And for some reason, I, I wiped out all my good intentions, and I've always had tremendous supply of good intentions. I've always wanted to be a better person. I've been a be a better person business all my life. And uh, I just wiped out all the things I intended to be and looked just at my actions. And God, I turned out to be a a drunken doctor, drunken husband, drunken father, drunken neighbor, drunken citizen. Common, ordinary, routine, garden variety drunk. And one day a gal walked up to the podium she says, I'm an alcoholic and a pill head. I have no idea why her saying that clicked and I thought, my God, I'm a pill head. It's been like that ever since, up till including this morning, things that even Hal says, people say things identifying, that's, you know, that's me. That's how I found out who I am, by listening to you and identifying. And it's been very meaningful to me. And it, and it took seven months, took till the end of July of 61, of uh, July 31st of uh, 67, till I was able to accept the fact that it's true, I do have a drinking problem, and it's a serious one, and indeed I might even be a kind of alcoholic, some mild kind. Uh, but, you know, and, and that's all it took. And if there's any of you here today that are not really, 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 really alcoholic, lie a little bit. <laughs> it's okay. You don't, we don't, you don't have to be all that bad. Nobody said, I've never met anybody that's ever been asked to leave AA because they weren't alcoholic enough. Well, you laugh, but I've seen a lot of people do leave because they're not alcoholic enough. And I've never seen one of them that came back, that made it back, that wasn't more alcoholic than when they left. Uh, but you don't have to leave. No, Nobody's going to ask you to leave. As a matter of fact, we're... I hate to say this publicly, but we're kind of noted for the fact that we'll take just about anybody in this organization. You know? There's two ways to become more alcoholic. One is to go out and drink some more. The other is to stay here and not drink anymore. And either way, you'll probably find you're, you're more alcoholic as time goes by. And this is the easier, softer way. So acceptance of my alcohol, I haven't had a drink since that time. I think uh, acceptance was the key to sobriety, and acceptance is the key to serenity for me. I think what happened was that, you know, there are only two kinds of people. There are people who drink and people who don't drink. And of the people who drink, there's two kinds. Nine out of ten who drink are social drinkers, and one out of ten react differently, and they're alcoholics. And of the alcoholics, there's two kinds. There's practicing alcoholics and recovering alcoholics. I've been both. Recovering is better. And uh, I think I had that feeling that if I'm going to be an alcoholic, I want to be the recovering kind. 
I want to be, let's, let's use the word winners and losers. I know a lot of people don't like the term losers, but substitute something else that you like better. But if I was going to be an alcoholic, I wanted to be a winner in AA. I wanted to be a successful member of AA. And I began to go around, I started, and I still do, go around and talk to people who are sober and appear to be happily sober. And I ask them, how do you work this program? What do you do? What is it you're doing? What is it you stopped doing? And I talk to people who aren't making it. People are in and out, in and out. And it's very simple. I began to act like the winners act and not act like the losers. Because if you act like a winner, you'll be a winner. If you act like a loser, you're sure as hell will be a loser. And one of the earliest things I found, one of my favorite questions was, have you written a four-step inventory and taken your fifth with one other person? Worded just like that. Have you written your four-step inventory and taken your fifth with one other person? And I found that the vast majority of winners say yes, and the vast majority of losers say no. And I don't think you, you were really a member of the program until we've done that. And so I did that, and I've done it two or three times since. And it's been very meaningful to me, and I think many, many spot inventories in between. My pen and the telephone have been two two very important instruments in my sobriety. And I hate to use the telephone, always have. But I have phone numbers at all, a list of numbers at all my phones now. And every time I have an extra five, ten minutes, I call somebody and uh, call my sponsor often. Jack's been very good to me. Uh, his favorite expression, however, is, well, whatever. And if you don't have a sponsor yet, don't pick one who says, well, whatever. It's rather maddening. Uh, my feeling has always been, I would have been a different person if Max had acted different. If Max had been different, I would be different. And my favorite thing was, let me tell you what you did now. And I'm always telling people, you know, let me, let me tell you what she's done today. And I, my sponsor was getting this sort of thing a lot of the time. And I remember one time calling him to tell him what she, what she'd done to me now. I guess he got a little tired of hearing it or something. And he said, uh, well, why don't you just put it out of your mind for a couple of days and see what happens? And I said, what do you mean, put it on? If I put it on my mind for a couple of days, I might well forget all about it, you know. I remember the fellow that said something about he was his sponsor said, sat down with him. And he says, well, from now on, from now on, we're not going to tell her what's wrong with her. And the guy said, well, who's going to tell her? You know, I, you know, uh, people need help like that. Uh, I, uh, 
acceptance has been the key to serenity for me, too. Accepting life on life's terms. Accepting life as it is, not as I wish it were. Accepting Max as she is. Uh, as I was finishing the thought of Max being the cause of my problem, I've always thought I'd be a better person if Max acted different. The The real challenge of marriage is for me to be the spouse I would be if I had the perfect wife. For me to change first, rather than to get her to change so I could change. In fact, in the word acceptance, what is it we accept? What do we accept? I think we accept the challenge. Accept the challenge that life offers. And being, allowing myself to be an alcoholic, what did I do? I accepted the challenge of saying, okay, I'm an alcoholic, I can live with that. I can live the life successfully in spite of that. And begin to live the life of a winner. Act as if I were a winner in order to become one. I do that with a lot of things. When I, uh, depression has always been one of my favorite things. Whenever I was depressed, I would act depressed. And I found out that's very depressing. Yeah. That when I feel depressed, I act as if I'm happy. In fact, I love the phrase, my kids gave me a uh, poster. And it says, uh, it has a polar bear on it, just slumped over a hunk of ice. And down at the bottom it says, act enthusiastic and you'll be enthusiastic. And a lot of times, I'll fake it till I make it. I'll act enthusiastic in order to be enthusiastic. In fact, even like the word enthusiasm, and theos, theos, God, the God within, the spirit within. And I feel that the more enthusiastic I act about this program, the closer I am to the God that picked me up and set me in an AA meeting and said, sit there and keep your mouth shut and listen. And uh, my relationship with God is entirely different than it was. Uh, my relationship with Max is entirely different. My relationship with myself is different. My relationship with people is different. And not only is my relationship with God different, I have an entirely different God concept. I had a very close, uh, very um, intense religion uh, religious upbringing, the problem with it was that it was completely soluble in alcohol. And uh, it was completely washed away by the time, maybe four, four, five, six years before I found myself in AA. And today, I have an entirely different concept of God. And uh, he and I get along very well together. It's just, we have a good relationship. Uh, he rides to work with me every day, uh, except on the days when he forgets. The, uh, I don't play the car radio and talk to him instead, like Hal says. And um, 
he, uh, in fact, I was always raised under the concept that we're going to go to hell. We're all going to go to hell unless we're lucky enough to go to heaven. Heaven or hell, that's what it is. Life is just one final crapshoot. And you're going to go to the pearly gates, and God's going to say, were you good? And either eternal reward or eternal damnation. That's what it's all about. I've never met anybody who's ever gotten to the pearly gates and had that pre-admission interview. Uh, and I've never met anybody that's met anybody that's done it. So I'm not sure that's what's going to happen. I, I think that's just a theory. Uh, it being a theory, I can have my own theory. And I'm not sure that when we get there, God's going to say we're good. In fact, according to that theory, God's already got a book full of black marks, and he knows the answer to that question, so why would he ask it? Uh, I think instead, God has gone to a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble to make us happy. I think he's very concerned about the amount of love, peace, happiness, joy on earth. Why, why are there so many beauties of nature, so many uh, occasions for joy, so many kinds of love? Uh, I think uh, I think God wants us to be happy. I think. Uh, in fact, when we, if, if we do get to the gates of heaven and there is this pre-admission interview, I don't think he's going to ask us very good. I think he's going to say, you know, I've been working like the devil. To, uh, I've been working very hard to try to... <laughs> I've been working day and night to give you everything you need to be happy. Everything you need. I may not give you everything you want, but I've given you everything you need to be happy. <clears throat> Did you enjoy it? And if you say, well, gee, God, if I'd have known that's what I was supposed to... If I say, now quit stalling. Tell me the truth. I've been working real hard to make you happy. Did you enjoy it down there? Were you happy down there? And you say, well, not really, God. He's probably going to say, well, you can go to hell. You know, the, uh, the, uh, you can see why I was uncomfortable about being a spiritual speaker. I don't uh, have, have much to do with the formal religion. In fact, I, I fantasize about things like this, and even... Even the Bible, I fantasize things like uh, some things I never did understand, like the uh, story of uh, the Garden of Eden. To me, that was sounded like the biggest ab scam deal I've ever heard. You know, uh, 
He knew what they would do if he told them not to do it, but he told them not to do it anyway, knowing they'd do it. And then he got real upset when they did it. You know. uh, I, but you know, I'm going to get down from here. But <clears throat> this Isaac Asimov said <clears throat> made the comment that with um, slavery, he said. Slavery was so accepted in antiquity that um, it wasn't even discussed in the Bible, in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. And I thought, well, uh, neither was alcoholism. It discussed alcoholism in the Bible. In fact, I don't know how anybody reads the paper without knowing something about alcoholism and doing all the crazy things that go on. There's the crazy things, and down bottom says he was drinking at the time. Think, oh, I see, he's an alcoholic. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but if you put <clears throat> alcoholism into the Bible, it makes makes it more understandable to me. Because he figured, out, you know, alcoholism is a disease. Somebody had to have it first. Who was the first alcoholic? To me, if you know your alcoholism stuff, it's obvious. It was Eve. <laughs> Stop and think for a minute. God created Adam and all the other animals, and then Adam was sitting around grousing about the fact that he alone was alone. All the others came in pairs. So God, as an afterthought, created Eve. And uh, that made Adam kind of happy, but was so stupid he kept reminding her that she was second choice and she got to drinking the apple cider and God got upset about it and spoke to her about her drinking there's no more drinking in the garden and, uh, she took a vow says okay God no more by God and uh and she did. She didn't drink at all. And everything went fine. And she spent her time working in the garden. Turned it into a paradise. And she was happy. God was happy. Adam was happy. Uh, but they didn't appreciate the fact that she wasn't drinking. And finally she decided to have a drink. And once she had a drink, she couldn't stop. And she really got to hitting it. Actually got blasted. And ended up seeing talk, talking to a snake. You know, and naked in the street. You know, and neighbors called the police. And uh, God heard about it and came running. But uh, he didn't throw her out of the garden. She says the he can keep his job, and she left, you know, got out before he got there. They went to another state and set up, uh, took a geographic. Some of their kids were alcoholics. In fact, uh, Cain killed his brother in a blackout. And uh, God asked him, what, where's your brother? And he says, God only knows God. I don't, you know. Um... Uh, and nobody's ever believed uh, an alcoholic uh, coming out of a blackout since. And uh, but you see, it's all very simple when you ha- when you realize about alcoholism. 
Anyhow, I, uh, I, the smartest thing I ever did was to allow myself to be an alcoholic. Uh, I, I always thought the worst possible thing that could ever happen to a nice guy like me would be I'd turn out to be an alcoholic, and it's the best thing that's ever happened. I've never had it so good. I, uh, it took courage for me to do that. I speak of, an, of um, acceptance being the key to sobriety, but courage plays an important part in there, too. And it takes a lot more courage <clears throat> to be an alcoholic and stay sober. It takes a lot more courage to make it out there without drugs than with them. Look at the courage it takes to come to AA, especially if you're a doctor. Look at the courage it takes to hold up your hand as a newcomer, especially if it's not the first time or the second or the third. Look at the courage it takes to turn your will and your life over to the care of a God that you're afraid of. Look at the courage it takes to write down everything you don't like about yourself, knowing that somebody might find it around the house. So you decide to carry it with you. Then you think, my God, what will happen if I have an auto accident and they take me to a hospital? Look at the courage it takes to read that to somebody. It takes tremendous courage to to make it sober, to be a successful member of AA. And that's the greatest thing in my life. I'm very pleased to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not proud to be an alcoholic. As I, I can't be proud of it because I don't know that I did anything to make me an alcoholic. You may say, well, you drank too much. I'm not sure that's true, that that's why I'm an alcoholic. I understand that alcoholics have a tendency to drink too much. Uh, So I don't know at what point I became an alcoholic. So I'm not proud to be an alcoholic in the sense that I don't know know of anything I did to make me an alcoholic. I don't have anything I failed to do to make me an alcoholic. So I have no reason to be proud of it nor ashamed of it. But I'm alcoholic. But I'm mighty proud. Gratified, as Hal would say. Grateful. To be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I think that's absolutely fantastic. I thank God for AA. And I thank you for my sobriety. Safe trip home. Good morning, friends. My name is Elmer, and I'm an alcoholic. I will only be several minutes, so if you'd just like to sit down. 
When I got up this morning, I looked outside and I said, isn't it a great day? <clears throat> and I realized for many mornings when I've done that, despite what the weather is like outside, I feel good inside. <clears throat> and I have felt especially touched by many of the speakers I've heard at this conference, and it's been very meaningful. It's been a very rewarding and rich experience. Now, I think the icing to the meeting was put on this morning by listening to Hal talk about gratitude and listening to my good friend Paul talk about acceptance is the key. <clears throat> I've heard many definitions about gratitude, and one I like is that gratitude is the silver platter upon which I give you what God has given to me. <clears throat> I may not mean very much to you, <clears throat> but you people mean an awful lot to me. <clears throat> and I'm very grateful that you all came here. I know you've traveled long distances. I know that for you it was expensive. So I'm eternally grateful as all the members of the committee are, that you came along and just made this a fantastic experience for all of us. God bless you, and God willing, we'll see you next year. And as someone said, I only get to see some of you folks once a year, but I think of you often during the year. And it's these very, very rich <coughs> interrelationships, sharing of experience, strength and hope at these meetings that we have once a year, at this beautiful fellowship of IDAA that fortifies my sobriety, makes me a better person, and I also know that the spiritual foundation for my sobriety is based upon my spiritual condition. I have no problem with that because I meditate a lot, and I try and get in touch just as much as I can with my, my higher power, a loving God as I understand him. So I have no problem with this program. I just try and be a better human being. And so until we meet next year, God bless you, and we'll close in the usual way by the